the network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. This is AV Week. Episode 93, recorded Friday, May 31st, 2013. The CEO Show. Ready. AV, AV Week. Performing scan. Week. Online. This is AV Week. It's time for AV Week, your weekly wrap-up of audiovisual news and information. My name is Tim Albright. I'm your host. Uh, with us this week, back because he couldn't get enough of us, is Mr. Ron Callis, the CEO of One Firefly. Welcome, sir. Thank you. Happy to be here. Uh, also with us is Paul Harris, the CEO of Aurora Multimedia. Welcome, sir. How you doing? Thank you for inviting me. And last but not least, because you know what, I had two CEOs and I had to get a third. His name is Doug Fast. He's from Nice, NYCE Control. Welcome, Mr. Fast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Uh, this week, we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff from a, a class you can take at Infocom, which, just for the record, as of this recording, is about a week and a half away. Uh, some crazy person has a, another story about the Apple TV, you know, the one you hang on your wall. Um, I don't believe it, but we're still going to talk about it. Wireless locks, because everybody loves wireless locks and how to make your house smarter. But you know what? In the world of AV, we don't get a whole lot of breaking news. And we have some this afternoon. We are recording this on May 31st, 2013 at roughly 3 o'clock Eastern, uh, which by my estimation is about 7 UTC or 8 UTC. I always forget. Uh, and this one actually involves one of our, our fine guests, Mr. Callis. The IMAX Private Theater. Um, both CE Pro is breaking this as well as this. there's a story in Wall Street Journal. Uh, and if you go to IMAXPrivateTheater.com, you can check it out there as well. Uh, but, Maron, since you had a, a – I'm not going to say – you had a hand in this. Let's just, let's just lay it out there. You had a hand in this, uh, and you've been working on this for some time. Let's, let's just take it down. What exactly is the IMAX Private Theater? Sure. Th thanks for the opportunity. You know, everybody uh, knows the name IMAX. Uh, IMAX uh, is probably one of the more well-known brands uh, around the world. And IMAX has now developed a solution for the private home. So we're calling it the, the IMAX Private Theater. And uh, my company's role, uh, we've actually been on, on a consulting basis with IMAX uh, for approximately uh, two years. Uh, and IMAX has played around with the idea for the better part of a decade of entering the home business. And, uh, you know, my involvement, uh, my partner Federico Balsoni, along with uh, Theo Kalamarakis, uh, and then Paul Self as a consultant, we've worked with the management team at IMAX over the past several years to develop the product and the go-to-market strategy for this uh, uh, really leading edge product. Um, and the news, it, it's exciting, you know, when you've worked on something for so long to finally be able to talk about it publicly. Um, the IMAX private theater website went live uh, in May. And uh, on May 3rd, I believe it was Friday, if you Google it, uh, the Hollywood Reporter actually broke uh, the story that Seth MacFarlane, uh, the well-known, you know, producer and director, the guy from Hollywood, uh, is one of the, the first clients. And uh, so at that point, the cat was out of the bag. And uh, the official position from IMAX is just uh, going public today in the Wall Street Journal and in CE Pro, so to the trade. So it's, uh, it's very exciting. All right. So, so walk me through this. I mean, this is, this is not just a, a custom theater, right? I mean, this is... Uh, well, it, it is a custom theater, but it's it's a custom theater built around the IMAX standard, right? That's right. The, the, the theater meets all requirements and specifications as defined by IMAX. In fact, you know, the finished product uh, gets a limited edition plaque stating that it's, you know, one of 
so many theaters uh, sold globally, you know, we estimate, um, I guess there's different uh, estimates, uh, both here at One Firefly and, and corporately at IMAX, but we suspect we'll sell in the neighborhood of 10 to 15 of these theaters a year. And uh, the electronics package and the screen and the, the interaction and involvement of the engineering team is really what the, the consumer is purchasing. Uh, the, the sticker price is $2.25 million. Um, that, that does include projectors, speakers, electronics, control systems, video and audio processing, and screen. That does not include uh, the seating and the interior you know, uh, materials and, and build-out. Does it include a popcorn machine? You know, I think we might be able to throw one of those in. Wow. But, uh, you're, you know what? Here's the thing. You're, you're right about, and th there's a line on the IMAX private theater website. Uh, everyone has experienced it. Few will own it. This is a, uh, th this is a different market, right? This, this, is, a, a, this is not, you know, uh, a, a Best Buy $2,000 flat screen market. No, this is a, a very select group of individuals globally that have, uh, you know, you have to combine a number of factors for one of these to get sold. I mean, obviously, they have to have the means. Yeah. So they have to have the net worth um, to where they can, you know, spend, you know, two or three million dollars on a room in their home and for them to, you know, simply be able to do that. But then you also have to have the enthusiast, you know, the person that enjoys uh, movies, enjoys entertaining their friends and their family. And, um, and th there also is a, a bit of, I, I think, ego that comes into it. Someone that would want to be one of a very select um, uh, people in the world that, that can have one of these theaters. You know, we've, we've thought of and, and modeled this a bit after the, the concept of the Bugatti Veyron. You know, when they, uh, the manufacturer launched the Bugatti Veyron as a, a car model, uh, you know, it's in the millions of dollars. It, it's an expensive car. And, and the initial thought was that they would perhaps sell a few hundred. And uh, in a very short period of time, they actually had back orders uh, exceeding a thousand for that, you know, million dollar plus car. And so we know that the audience is out there. You know, there are, are you know, more than a thousand billionaires around the world. And there are certainly, uh, you know, uh, many more than that uh, people with net worth, you know, in excess of 50 to 100 million. And those are generally the individuals we see buying these. We also uh, have recently gained corporate approval to place the, the private theater into community uh, developments, such as high rises. Oh, so wow. as long as theaters are not being, tickets are not being sold, um, then we can likely place this theater into a, a high-rise or community development. Wow. Uh, real quick, and, and we'll, we'll get on to the rest of the stories. Can you talk about what's in it? I mean, can you talk about, you mentioned that, that the price tag comes with, you know, it includes the projection and the, and the sound and the processing. Can you talk about any of it? Is it all branded IMAX, or is there a, a specific brand um, of speaker and, and projector you're using? Now, every piece of gear uh, at the end is is labeled IMAX. Okay. There, there's no piece of gear in the in the in the solution, um, from the control processor to the um, the projectors uh, and and beyond that that say another name other than IMAX. Okay. Uh, the majority of the products are are in-house engineered and manufactured. There are a number, a, a couple of products that are OEM'd and then, you know, souped up with IMAX special sauce in order to, to have them meet the IMAX criteria instead of specifications. Um, All right. Hopefully that answers it. It does. It does. And, and one, one last question. Do you think that they will ever show this um, at Infocom or not NAB, but CES or another trade show? And if so, how would they work that? Like, would they build it specifically at, at, on the show floor? Sure, that's, that's a great question. Um, where we're at right now is uh, IMAX is based in Toronto, uh, Mississauga, uh, uh, up in, uh, I believe that's Ontario. Um, and uh, at, their, at their headquarters, they have the R&D lab where we've already started taking some of our, we're calling them partners. These are the integrators that are signed on to both sell and install the IMAX private theater. And we've, so we've been able to take them up there to experience the, the visual and the audio experience that is IMAX. Um, 
the next step is to build out the first official demo theater. So that is currently in, in development. And so if, if our partners have, would like to take customers to see and experience the real thing, they can take them to Toronto. Uh, and then beyond, we, we have our first live installation um, uh, will be completed this summer in LA. That's uh, Seth MacFarlane's home. And so uh, I'll just say on a very limited basis uh, and with approvals from both IMAX and, and, the, and the client's representatives, we'd be able to take clients through that theater as well. Um, there's obviously a lot of approvals that would have to happen and yeah. a very qualified customer would have to be involved. But one thing I, I would like to mention, because there may be folks out there that are interested on, on how they would even get involved, is to please reach out to us or reach out to IMAX and, and let us know if you'd like to be involved as a partner. Um, we have, uh, we're, we're expecting to have somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 30 uh, IMAX uh, approved uh, technology partners on board. And these partners have really two roles with IMAX. And that is number one as resellers or as sales agents. So the, the, the sale, the transaction actually takes place between the homeowner and IMAX. So the, the contractor, the integrator, uh, is then has a, a revenue coming to them in, in the form of commissions, installation fees, and service fees. And that touches on then the second role of the partner, and that is installation. So even if IMAX makes the sale directly, which, which that will happen on occasion, then they're still going to be coming to their partners for installation support. Okay, so that's not quite a, a true like integration partner setup like you know an AMX or a Lutron. It, it's non-conventional for sure. Yeah. It's very cool. I wish I could spend the whole hour talking about this. but uh, we... It's been fantastically exciting being involved with it. Um, I've been a movie fan since I, was, I can remember. And to, to have my firm you know, be in this position and, and, and to see you know, the first article come out or the first ad come out in Rob Report last month, uh, it was, uh, you know, I had to pinch myself just to, you know, <laughs> To, to, to realize that it was real. And now we're on to the, you know, the task at hand, which is making this a successful launch and uh, making sales. Well, yeah, now, now you actually do have to, have to do the work, you know, so well, very cool. Well, congr first of all, you know, congratulations to you guys. Seriously, seriously. Um, all right, moving on to uh, the Business Insider. Uh, we have another, oh, let's call them a reporter, but I'm going to be I'll save that judgment till later. Uh, this gentleman was on a, a tour of Taiwan and China and met with some manufacturers and got what they are going to call, quote unquote, inside information about a Apple display. They're going to call it ITV. Um, first of all, I, I, I even hesitated to, to do the story because it, it felt like for the first year after Steve Jobs's passing it was like every week or so somebody had an absolute ironclad guarantee that we're going to have you know an apple tv and, and those have died down um paul if this ever happens well first of all how likely is this product ever to happen uh, you know and i've heard this uh, plenty of times about this apple tv and their first attempt was not exactly a great success the biggest problem I see with, with Apple is that they don't share their technology. So everything's very proprietary to them. They control the experience, as they would claim to say. Uh, but the problem is when you sometimes try to control the experience, you do ostracize a lot of other people in the process. Uh, for example, I had recently just gotten another Android phone, the uh, S4. And the thing is, seems to be technically more advanced than the iPhone 5. And it's not because Apple's not capable of making a newer, better product, but they're only one company against how many Android manufacturers mm -hmm. that because the technology is being shared. Uh, what tends to happen in the history of technology is other people will group together, just like the VCR beta was, and beta was the better technology, but they wanted it all to themselves. And as a result, VCR won out because of a lot of other manufacturers making the technology, making it for less, and that's what you see happening here. You have uh, different varieties of and sizes of Android this, Android that. Um, Android's come a long way. The, the latest OSs are very comparable to the to the uh, Apple, um, and to get 
manufacturers to put, what's the chances of getting Sharp to put Apple technology inside a Sharp TV? It's not really going to happen. So you're always relying on an external box, whereas a manufacturer like a Sharp or a Samsung is going to react back, and they're going to put Android inside their TVs and do the same exact thing, but on their own terms. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know that I would have used Sharp in that instance because I don't know that they're going to be putting anything in TVs in about six months. But you know, that's just because they're they're on they're on the ropes. Let's just say, uh, Doug, when it comes to this particular product, the, the the Apple TV or the iTV or the iDisplay, whatever it is, they end up calling it. How big of an impact would this happen? Would, would this have on the AV industry? I think it would be significant. There's a lot of major players looking at the space. Everything's got broadband. Everything's trying to be connected. Everybody's looking at it. So it wouldn't surprise me if Apple's really looking at it. Um, you know, Paul does have a point that Apple tends to be proprietary and uh, some of the others are more open. But Apple's focused on selling simplicity, not technology, whereas some of the others just want to sell the technology. It's. It's on the trajectory of broadband, everything connected all the time, the glasses and all of that. So there's certainly something like this coming out. Uh, but everything is, is blending and converging and merging. Internet of Things, sensorization, like it's, it's happening. It just depends, can Apple do it, given where they're at now? If they don't, somebody will. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Ron, Doug mentioned the fact that, that Apple's selling simplicity. They're also selling you know, the whole integration, at least it feels like it. Uh, according to this, again, according to this report, um, there's going to be integration between uh, the FaceTime and, and the, the, this whole display thing. Does it? It feels to me that that they're almost following the Microsoft Surface slash Xbox uh, slash Slate model. Um, is that a fair assessment, or are they doing something totally on their own? Well, I've been an an Apple fan. Maybe I'm a, a late bloomer, but I've been an Apple fan since the iPod, and uh, I actually still have my ar ar archaic. Uh, Brick-sized iPad, the big white or iPod, oh, the, the, at least the that's white what one. It feels like. What now? The big white one with the the four buttons at the top. Uh, the, the the big white one with the the shiny metal case. It's about maybe half an inch or three quarters of an mm -hmm. inch thick. Um, or at least that's what it seems like. Seems like. So, uh, you know, I'm a I'm a huge fan of Apple. I think that what they do in terms of uh, their gear uh, uh, for the home for the iPad. It's revolutionized our industry. I, I'm, I'll just keep it at a up in the clouds level. I won't be surprised if they do launch a TV that it will also revolutionize. It'll, it'll be another shockwave to our industry. Um, if you couple that, you know, the, the ITV concept with the Apple TV, which is just a, a wonderful content delivery box. It's fun. It's easy to use. My wife can use it. She likes using it. She didn't have to get trained on how to use it. Uh, I'm I'm very optimistic that it'll it'll probably just be a, a huge success. You know, assuming that it they launch and it they don't have manufacturing issues and it's a, a reliable product like everything else they they sell. I think it'll it'll be probably some of the biggest news of the year. Yeah, you're probably right. If they if if they ever can do it, then it will be revolutionary. I, I guess it's there. So if, well, if, and here's if. the thing: somebody um on the actually the the article uh people below in the comments said. You know what? They they worked on a quote unquote phone for years that people said they weren't really working on, and then suddenly, you know, they have the iPhone. Well, you know what? Let them work on it for a few more years, and they can they can probably hit it out of the park. So, uh, from Listen Technologies, uh, Infocom, as I mentioned, is about a week and a half away uh, from this this recording here, twelfth, um, thirteenth, the twelfth, thirteenth, and fourteenth of June. Uh, you can take uh, training and stuff like that a couple of days before then, though. Uh, it's in Orlando, and Listen Technologies is doing something cool. Uh, they are having a session called Hearing Disability Compliance Overview, uh, done by Corey Schaefer, the co-founder of Listen Technologies. Uh, actually, Paul, we're going to kick this off with you. When it comes to ADA, and that's actually what the um, the training is, is, is kind of spun off from, is the Americans with Disabilities Act compliance. What kind of what kind of impact or effect has that legislation has ADA had on on our industry? Um, you know, I'm going to have to kind of pass on this question because okay. I really don't get involved heavily with that one, so I don't want to comment on something I'm not uh, thoroughly uh, involved in. 
Uh, so that's one of those topics that might be better suited by one of the other people on this. All right, Ron, do you know what uh, if or you know what kind of impact this has had on us? I, <laughs> Tim, I don't want to do this to you, but never mind. I'm going to defer this to Doug. <laughs> Sure, defer to the Canadian that this doesn't apply to. <laughs> oh, very nice. You're striking out, Tim. Very well done. Do you guys uh, have an I, ADA? I, not that I'm aware of. I, I, will, I will step in and say one thing. Yeah. I, I do know the people over at Listen Technologies, and they make fantastic products over there. But in the scheme of the overall, at least commercial AV space, they're very unique in what they do. They, they, they focused in, and honed in on a very specific sector of the market, uh, which is the uh, assistive hearing area. And from what I've heard, they do a great job. I, I can't say that I personally have utilized it because obviously uh, I don't have hearing issues, but they fill a, a, a big need in the industry. Uh, however, unlike other parts, it does have a very limited segment to it, so you can only have so many companies and so much focus on it. So it's a very... A specific area that people do focus on. A lot of the projects that I've been involved in, I don't exactly come across a lot of things related to that because they're only required in very certain areas like uh, possibly a school system uh, where it's the theater area and they, they need to supply some type of assistive uh, hearing. So that particular topic, I think the reason why everybody's deferring it is because it, it has its own very specific niche in the industry that is of a, a lower popularity because of what it is. Well, and it's also I've learned about this requirement uh, because I, I work for a, a college here in St. Louis, and uh, we've had to deal with this here recently, where it, it was brought to our attention that we were not meeting some of them, uh, and we we are now through through research and, and we purchased some products. But like you have to have if you have a, a a seating capacity of and I don't know it off the top of my head certain amount of size, you have to have the ability to. Uh, have listening assist or hearing assist systems um, available at least to people uh, who have hearing uh, impairments. So, you know, and, and whether that's you know a pair of, of personal headphones or an induction loop uh, thingy, it's it it's this little you know, almost just like a pendant and it interacts with uh, with a certain coil, a T coil uh, hearing aids. So, well, I will take I will add a little bit to that. What I have seen since we do a lot of education work out there, that's one of our biggest markets right now is de dealing a lot with education and school systems. Uh, what, you're, what you're referring to also, I saw it, I think I'm not 100% certain, so don't quote me on this, started uh, a lot of it in Chicago area, where uh, the, or Illinois at least, where the school systems were requiring, I think it was anything larger than 25 students in a classroom didn't even so much had to do with uh, assistive listening or hearing aids. It had to do with you had to put a voice lift system in mm. if the classroom was of a certain size because uh, they found that the kids in the back of the classroom weren't paying attention, not just because they were hanging out in the back of the room and doing some uh, whatever you, things that you want to do in the back of the room, but they were not hearing the teacher uh, very clearly because of how far away she was or he, for that matter, and they would actually amplify the sound so that way they could better hear what the teacher uh, was actually saying. So that has become, and I've seen it, uh, it's, it's not a federal mandate yet, but state by state, or at least county by county, it's become more and more of a requirement. So I've been seeing voiceless, and we're even looking into ourselves, uh, doing our own voiceless system, because we, we just came out, actually, as a matter of fact, I'll give myself a plug, at, at Infocom, as a matter of fact, we're going to be introducing a new 360 sound field speaker. Mm, very cool. And, that's so you can easily install it into classrooms and things of that nature. So that way, if you want to use it in conjunction with the voice lift or the program material, the whole entire classroom can actually hear it. So that's kind of an example. But that's what I have seen a, a popular thing is uh, I see good use in it. I have kids. And, you know, to know that they can hear what the teacher's saying is always a good thing. No, absolutely is. Absolutely is. Uh, next up on our, our, our chopping block here, uh, <laughs> control a wireless speaker just by putting your phone on it. Uh, it comes to us from Giz Gizmodo. Um, Doug, when it comes to technology and stuff, it feels like we are pushing for wireless. Uh, everybody um, in the world is, is wanting to go wireless. Why Why would we all want to go wireless, I guess? The, the benefit of wireless is that it may seem redundant, but there aren't any wires, and, and there's a perception of simplicity in the, in the wireless stuff. You know, when I installed my Nest thermostat, I didn't have to tell it anything. It just found the wireless setup and, and configured itself. 
you know, I don't have to run the cables. I can the mobility works, and you know, with the, with something like this, I don't have to figure out how to plug my phone in. I just drop it on. So it's it's a drive for simplicity, and just ease of use. You know, for for techie people, they want to read. Well, they don't want to read the manual, but they want to no. fiddle. My my wife doesn't want to fiddle, right? She's got kids. She's got to do all the stuff. She just wants it to work. And so I think it's just a drive for it to just work is, is, is really what's pushing it. Ron, what are some of the, we said besides, obviously, Doug, you mentioned the, the simplicity of it. What are some of the other strengths that wireless has over maybe having a wired system? Well, you, you get access to a much larger marketplace. Uh, if, you, you know, if you look at the number of homes or commercial facilities that have the, I'll call it the necessary and appropriate amount of infrastructure already in place, that's a, a, a very small fraction um, compared to, uh, uh, or say, and that generally happens with new construction, right, where you can pull the wires that you need to put in place. But if you look at the volume of the world, you know, buildings already exist. Your high rises exist, your homes exist, your buildings exist. So if you can now just simply plug something in and have it work, you know, the manufacturers that are designing wireless solutions and technologies are obviously trying to capitalize on that, you know, very large built-in marketplace. Yeah, and that's – you guys make a good point. The only other thing is, is I'm, I'm always – I don't know. I'm, maybe I'm an old fuddy-duddy, but I would, I'm always a big fan of, of having something that's wired. Uh, but we're going to move on to something else that's wired, the slag sl- – S-C-H-L-A-G-E. Anybody want to take a stab at how you say that? I believe it's Schlage. Thank you. Schlage Camelot Touchscreen Deadbolt. And here is the, the, the one thing that caught me up about this, and we'll, we'll get to why we're doing this in a second, is the scenario. It's Monday morning, and you're late for work, and you forgot your house keys. And you've locked your keys inside your house now. One thing that's interesting about that is the fact that I'm not quite sure how you drove to work if you locked your keys in your house. But, hey, you know, I'm not the writer. Um, Paul, when it comes to – we did a show a couple of weeks, a couple of months ago. Um, actually, it was a preview to ISE, and we, we had on it a, a number of integrators from Europe. And I was flattened by the number of <laughs> – and this is weird – the, the market in Europe for wireless and, and keypad deadbolts. Um, and it doesn't feel like it's, it's that big in the U.S. Um, is there a reason for that, or are we just, you know, we still, uh, we like our keys, I guess? I think part of it is that um, we're, 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 I wouldn't say we're right away becoming like, uh, behind, well, we are becoming behind the technology in a nutshell. Uh, a lot of a lot of the other countries are building. You know, there's always an advantage when you're the when you're the the next one in line to build. It's like technology. Whoever comes out with the thing today has already surpassed the person who just did it last week, and so forth. Well, countries are no different. I mean, if they're in a building mode where at one point they didn't have what we have, and now they're putting into place something that we already have, uh, they're going to obviously do it better. Uh, because of the, whatever technology they're purchasing at that given time. Every time you buy something, at the time, it always seems state-of-the-art, and then no one wants to replace it until it absolutely becomes necessary. And time, you know, things just take time. I mean, look at how long the CD player took to really take hold of the market. It took a long time. And then just as it really took hold of the market, then DVDs started hitting. And then there was talk of using DVDs in place of audio CDs, but that never happened because MP3 came along. And then, you know, and, and so on and so on. And the cloud, and it just it goes on and on and on. And, and so, yeah, there's a possibility that as we learn to upgrade, we might even surpass what they're doing at some point. When it comes to door locks, I think people, it's one of those technologies where unless you're building a new house and you include it in that house, no one's going to run out and spend $100 or whatever this thing costs to just go throw a new door lock onto their door. When a key works really just fine uh, for the most part. Uh, I did look at it real quick uh, at the link. Uh, one of my concerns, and I, I didn't read to see if it had it, is if it's security, does it shuffle the numbers around? Mm. Uh, of course, it doesn't. That's kind of a security problem there because you'd want to shuffle the numbers every single time randomly so that people can't track your pattern. So, you know, you're at nighttime, you're, you get all these wonderful camera phones all over the place that people love to record people with. 
and you're going into your front door and people get to not only record you with these nice big bright blue buttons of one through, zero through nine or whatever numbers they had on it, uh, but you also get to see the actual positioning of your fingers as you strike the key areas. So that would be my bigger concern from the security aspect of it is do they shuffle the numbers? Well, and Ron, that, that yeah, Paul makes a good point. Is it maybe better not to have the, the keypad, but you know, we get back into biometric controls and RF tags? I, I think that, I think certainly, but I think it's one se step at a time. Uh, I think you have to, you know, there's a paradigm shift that really would have to take place here in in North America, and I'll say uh, maybe a comparison is is lighting control and the light switch. You know, the, the light switch, uh, you know, your on off switch is one of your oldest um, types of technology in the home. Uh, you know, and this is you know from my lighting background, I'm familiar with you know how. Lutron and, and Crestron Advantage and some of these guys present their technologies to the marketplace. And, you know, they, they don't look at, at putting a dimmer in the home or a smart switch in the home as the competition is brand XYZ, but rather the competition is, you know, a, a $3 light switch from Home Depot. And I, I think the same goes for, you know, electronic uh, you know, wireless uh, 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 pads such as this product from Schlage this a wireless deadbolt is that people are simply in a pattern certainly the older generation maybe my generation and older are used to just pulling out your key and unlocking the door whereas the next generation you know the kids are growing up from the time they're they're toddlers with a phone or some type of electronic device in their hand and it is likely that they are going to be more quicker you know quicker to adopt some type of phone or, or pad controlled locking and unlocking mechanism for their door. And, uh, you know, it's, I think as we move forward, technology is going to find its way into more and more of our lives. I, I do think it's very interesting, and I'm not sure I have an opinion on why it is the case, that they'd be quicker to adopt technology such as this in Europe than in the U.S. Um, I'm, I think that's an interesting thing to, to, to analyze, but... Uh, yeah, I think it just would take time and a, and a con uh, concerted, dedicated marketing effort to get the mes message out that a technology like this exists. Your average, you know, homeowner probably doesn't even know that you could do this. Well, you make a good point about uh, about the technology and about the the devices that are in our hands. Actually, not this last year, but year a uh, year ago. So so CES 2012. Uh, I think Schlag and, and a couple of the competitors had. A uh, lock that had an NFC, a near field communication device. So you would, you if you had a, a cell phone like um, the uh, the Google uh, Nexus, uh, and you could just you know set it up and wave your phone, and there you go. So it just sucks if you lose your phone though. Um, uh, thank you. Uh, you are listening to AV Week. Uh, we're not wrapping up. I'm just you know halfway point. Reintroducing our guest is is what they call it in the broadcast business. Doug Fast, the CEO of Nice Control. Paul Harris is here as well, CEO of Aurora. And wrapping, uh, rounding out our CEO roundtable is Ron Callis from One Firefly, from Business Vancouver, which I'm assuming is a Vancouver publication. That was a joke. Um, how to make your house smarter. And uh, Doug, actually, this is a, a story about you guys. Um, you nice, and it's 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 spelled N Y C E, and so I had to ask him beforehand how you pronounce it. Nice Control makes um, they make well they they make sensors that interact with different um, different uh, cable modems and stuff like that to allow cable providers to give you security and, and some other things. Um, and you, when we talk about wireless, you you mentioned the fact that it's just easy, right? It, it's a simplicity yeah. of it. Yeah, um, it is. How does Nice figure into home automation? So, the the sensors that we build, we currently supply them into uh, Control Four, who's one of our partners, into their home automation space. Uh, and then in the article, we also talk about supplying our sensors for security. So the, the sensors in those applications are, are pretty similar, uh, but where we're looking is when you're putting lighting control in a house and you're going to try and program the lighting controller, do you just put a timer on it so that it turns off after five minutes? Or do you really want to know, are the people still in the room? And so you're able to use um, our motion sensor, for example, to tell 
uh, is there someone in the room? Should I keep the lights on? Or, hey, everybody left, I should turn the lights off. So we're, our sensors are adding the intelligence uh, to do those sorts of things. Um, in the article that, that you referenced, uh, our primary focus right now is in, is in the security side, because if you look at how many homes in the U.S. have high-end home automation, it's only about 3%. But the majority of Americans are willing to pay for security, and the same is true in Canada. So yeah. if we get a foothold in the house with these next-generation systems with security, you can then just start to add some more sensors to do lifestyle, to do elder care, to do home health care, all of these other things by adding just one sensor, you don't need to rewire the entire house. You uh, so, I'm sorry, you, you mentioned the, the Canadian uh, cable provider, and that's, their name is Rogers. Um, but yeah. you also have Comcast in the U.S. Is there anybody else that you're aware of in the U.S. Uh, going down this path? Certainly, I think we'd be hard-pressed to find someone that isn't. Certainly the top five cable operators, Comcast, Time Warner, uh, Bright House, Cox, Charter, all of these have launched home automation, uh, sorry, monitored home security solutions. And then if you go and look at the telephone company side, AT&T has been acquiring companies. Um, Verizon has ac acquired companies to do these launches. So everybody's launching. In the do-it-yourself side, Lowe's is launching their own system. So all of these major players are entering the space and they have variations on the model. It's either monitored home security or it's self-install unmonitored. Maybe the homeowner can do a better job phoning their friends when they get an SMS or a text or something else. And, and the police budget cuts and other things may make that a problem. So there's, there's a whole range of people entering. Um, in our focus, though, the, the major cable operators have all launched within the last year or year and a half. Uh, Paul, you, I'm, I'm glad, this is for you because, well, you're a part of Aurora Multimedia, another control company. Um, Doug mentioned that Nice is one of their one of their um, partners is Control Four. Wh what is the place? Um, what place is there for third party sensors or third party uh, add-ons like like Nice in the world of automation? Oh, plenty of space. I'm a big fan of third party. Um, you know, Aurora is a, a focus when we developed our control systems. We targeted non-proprietary, non-platform specific. Uh, specifically with that intent in mind, to have third-party people give variety. You know, if someone wants to buy something that we make, that's great. They're buying it for whatever reason that we uh, accomplish in the product. Uh, so when you add a third party to it, it further enhances. They have technologies uh, that maybe we can't do or they're doing better or is necessary in that particular environment. So it's, o it's always welcome, at least from my point of view. You can't, you can't go wrong. It betters the overall installation. Uh, is there something to be said, Ron, for companies like Nice, where you know what you've got guys like Paul and Paul's, you know, Paul does more than just control; he also does video and stuff. Or Aurora does more than control; they do video. But taking somebody like Nice and saying, you know what, this is what we're going to do, and we're going to think about something that uh, where we see where we can be beneficial to, like uh, Aurora or Control Four or maybe even Crestron. Um. I mean, I think the future for companies like Nice is uh, it's bright. the The world of adding intelligence to control and automation systems, um, you know, where the sensors are inputs to then, you know, uh, to be coupled with the 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 programming language and the boolean strings, so that their their inputs lead to smart results on the other end, which are perceived then as intelligence to the system. I think that's that's an underserved cur uh, part of the market. I don't think that there's actually it, it, it's not currently done as frequently as one might think, and yet it's a, a, a natural progression for the growth and maturity of automation and control systems, um, whether they're in the residential environment or commercial environment, for you know motion sensors and and various types of contacts and sensors to. Uh, provide an intelligence to the system. And so I, I think uh, overall the price of technologies uh, are, are decreasing, the intelligence of the audience is increasing, and, and thus I think you know, companies like NICE and what Doug's doing is I think it's a fantastic growth opportunity for him. 
Uh, all right, guys. Uh, real quickly, two more stories, and then we'll we'll let you out of here. Uh, last, or uh, one from CE Pro, um, and from our buddy Julie Jacobson. Is this the cutest little twenty dollar HDMI switch on the planet? Uh, I don't mention it um, because you know she used the word cutest. Uh, but here's the thing: this is it's an HDMI switch. It's awfully smart. It's uh, made by Starin. It's twenty bucks. Let's begin there. Um, Paul, is this are are we getting to the point where where I, it, well, it's, at least it feels like this this HDMI switch and, and HDMI switching capabilities in general is becoming the next commodity uh, in AV? Like it's well, you get it with a box of Cracker Jacks. <laughs> you know, it, it's it's definitely got its place. Um, you know, I'm, I focus a lot on the commercial and digital signage industry. These type of things obviously are necessary for the home. The, the, the biggest thing that I have with uh, HDMI and those technologies is we lost the separation between professional and consumer. It used to be a much easier world. You had consumer, you had RCA jacks, uh, a fuzzy image, and if you went into professional, you had higher bandwidth amps inside the video, and they would have uh, BNC connectors, and you could justify the difference between the two. Now, the great thing about HDMI is it's pure digital. But when they did it, they focused, when they designed it on consumer space rather than commercial space and the professional broadcast space, for that matter, which is using SDI. Uh, and as a result, it kind of made a, a mishmash of the two. So a lot of these products right now that you see coming out are all coming out from China because China's just cranking these type of products out, OEMing it, doing all these things, and they're making it at a very low cost. It's kind of, well, I won't go there, but it kind of, it wraps into a whole other topic of, of that I've been preaching, which is related to uh, the integrators no, becoming more of installers and integrators because everybody wants to buy these low-cost products and not, uh, and have supply it so that someone could put it in for them because they're buying it online on the internet for 20 bucks in this case, yeah. uh, which kind of kills the professional space. And even the, the professional residential, it kind of kills the same thing when, when, when you get into that. But obviously, technology does have to advance. In this case, yeah, it helps the homeowner. There's no doubt about it. For the simple, everyday install, it's a cute little product. Uh, does it work in automation? Not really, because there's no control port to it that allows me to remotely control it and say specifically which input to go to. But as an add-on device, if it works, then you know it has its place without a doubt. What do you want? A two thirty two connector for for twenty? No, I'm joking. Uh, actually, you want to know something? For what it costs to put a two thirty two connector on? Yeah, why not? Yeah, or even even make it. You know, give it give it the ability to, to be on. You know, the network for crying out loud. Network uh, does actually add a lot a lot of cost. Believe it or not, that's that's seriously. You, you want to know something? Yeah, it does. I mean, the connectors alone, without going into all my cost breakdown details, because I got to earn a living here. Um, compared to two thirty two. Significantly more expensive because you have to have a processor that can handle the network stacks. Oh, Even if yeah. it's a little embedded microcontroller, it, it does require quite a few dollars of cost behind it. The transformer, the the you know with the connector, uh, it, it's it's got a little bit going on. It's not tremendously expensive, but by the time you put that circuitry down, put the markup on it, it can take it out of a price point very quickly. But a two thirty two, you can get away with using a very low cost tip-ring sleeve connector for all anybody cares, and almost all the little microcontrollers has a UART built into it, uh, which is the 232 port mechanism, and then you just need the little driver chip, which once again, you can get those very cheap. So, uh, you know, if I want to give away a little bit of secrets for about a buck in parts, they could probably easily put it onto the product. I never would have imagined that that was, that, that, that the 232 was less expensive than, than Oh, the, by far, uh, by far, they're not even close to each other. A LAN port versus a, uh, even Bluetooth is very expensive to implement. Wow. All right. Uh, <laughs> Ron, I... At least relative, you know what I mean? Oh, no, I, I, I got relative, yeah, but that, that was the one thing that, you know, um, who was it, um, uh, some engineer at, at uh, Crestron or AMX once told me that within five years, and this so this would have been by... By 2016, 2017, they won't have, or he doesn't see them having any any sort of 232 control uh, on most of their processors. And you know, go ahead. I, I would, you know, I, I would. You'd think that, but there's something about 232 that's just nice and simple. I mean, USB. I mean, every technology's got its its 
its pros and its cons. And actually, I'm going to go back to one of the other topics you just talked about just when you get into this conversation. The beautiful thing about 232 is it's simple, stupid, very low cost. Doesn't It's been around forever, and you can go hundreds of feet with it if you want at the right board rate with the right cable. USB, great technology, but once again, designed for consumer. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though RS-232 was in the consumer space as well, but it's high bandwidth. You can't go... 100 feet with USB without using an extender, which then you're talking, you know, $100, $200 for an extender pair and a Cat5 cable. Uh, you're really limited to about, what, 10, no more than 15, 20 feet with a USB cable. If you use USB 3.0, I think it even goes, make mighty, well, actually, I think it's the same because they just double the pairs. But the, the point is that I'm making, uh, everything has its place. So when you're talking about wireless before, one of the things, and that's why I'm jumping back into that topic, it's the same thing. Um, Next week, when you're at Infocom, good luck trying to use your Bluetooth headset. Oh, yeah. I guarantee you, you will have a hard time and want to put it back in your pocket. And the reason why is because there's so much interference from all the Wi-Fi, from all the other Bluetooths, that your Bluetooth is going to crack and break up during that environment. So here's a great technology. When you're in the reasonable and right environment, it has its place. Uh, It's limited to 30 feet, and that's on the ideal conditions based on where antennas are located and things of that nature. What a lot of people don't realize is that Bluetooth actually can go 300 feet if you use the Class 1 Bluetooth. A lot of people don't even know that there is a Class 1 Bluetooth. Same tech, same specification, just more just more juice to it. Yeah. Um, but even that, even with the extended distance, you're still going to get the problems that are related to it. But when it comes to 232, in five years, is it possible it might disappear? I, I don't know. I, I may give it more of like about 10 years before I disappear, before it uh, disappears. Uh, five years, I think, is still cutting it a little close. Every device I see out there still has a good old-fashioned 232 port. Because you know what? What happens when you can't get onto the network or you can't get onto the LAN? What do you usually use to configure? The front panel of the 232 port. Yeah. No, that's true. You know, even, and even the, the, the Series 3 uh, Crestron processor, they have, they, they have a 232 port. It's not the old-fashioned DB9. It's, it's uh, their Phoenix connectors. You know, they're... they're, they're um, Oh yeah, the Phoenix connectors, uh, but they still have them. So, um, Ron, when it comes to Paul mentioned the fact that that when it you know this whole digital HDMI thing, residential and, and commercial, you know, pro and 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 uh, you know, um, uh, just consumer electronics, they've been mashed together. Um, why did that happen? Well, I'm sure there are, are multiple reasons, but a, a, a primary reason that that happened was when the, uh, you know, the, the market melted down in, you know, 2008, the, the consumer integrator, the residential integrator uh, needed work. And so he, he found himself out in the marketplace looking for work and he, you know, he ended up picking up a, a significantly larger percentage of commercial work than historically, at least for the past, you know, 10 to 15 years of our industry, uh, an integrator was, was participating in. Um, I think that's, that's at least one uh, perspective on, on why we're seeing the, the residential and the commercial merge. Um, you know, residential work appears to be a bit cycli- cyclical and, and much more uh, reliant on the, uh, the the economy, perhaps. And, you know, it's, it's residential work is much less mature. The, cons- the commercial AV industry has decades uh, greater experience um, out there. And, and generally, you know, they're, they're working with their gear and they wouldn't dream of even wanting to deal with a homeowner and the, the challenges that come with dealing with a residential project. Yeah, yeah. The one other thing that I've always been told was the fact that uh, because of HDCP, because of, of content protection, um, we have to deal with it. And Paul mentioned SDI, which is a great is a great transport, but the only thing it doesn't transport is that little thing called content protection. So maybe eventually they'll get there. Maybe when they move it to, regarding to, to the SDI 5G. Mm-hmm. I, I think that we're going to continue to see the price of, of little gadgets and gizmos. I mean, in this case, a little HDMI switch. They're going to drop down. I mean, in a couple of years, five years, we'll, we'll, it'll probably be $5. It's, you know, the, the cost of, uh, uh, you know, I don't know if Moore's Law is a direct application here, but the cost of producing electronics, the more and more powerful we make them, the, their cost is going to, you know, be re- reduced to next to nothing. 
which at least from the industry standpoint, we need our, our contractors to make sure that, um, you know, as, as margins do erode on hardware, I know that, you know, people like Paul and Doug are, are perhaps trying to make sure that doesn't happen. But it, if you just look at the trend, it is happening. Um, you know, integrators just need to be focused on making sure they're appropriately selling their services and their expertise. Because it still, at least right now, takes an expert to know how to put these solutions together to make a, a, a great end product for the customer. Well, by the way, I want to touch on that SDI thing, and I do agree with you, Tim. If they would just put the back channel mm -hmm. to deal with the EDIDs and the uh, to, to retrieve information and to deal with the negotiation of the HD based I mean, the HD based I'm talking about another technology now. The, uh, <laughs> the HDCP, uh, it would actually. I would see the pro industry changing over to it mm -hmm. if they actually did that. Um, I mean, look at what you have to go through with HDMI in the pro industry, a, a connector that doesn't mm -hmm. lock and can be very finicky. I've seen it plenty of times where, you know, you shake the cable around and the, the signal goes in and out. Um, you know, it's, it's not, it's once again, it's, it was originally designed as a consumer thing. You plug the Blu-ray in, you plug the, you plug it straight into the TV. Life is grand. It was nice and simple, like a, like a US, like a USB cable. Uh, but in the pro industry, you know, you, you, the cables fall out, you throw it into a rack. It's, it's got, it gets its own set of problems. Uh, SDI, it's, it's a nice good old fashioned BNC connector. You twist it, it's locked in. Life is good. You can go a good amount of distance with it. You don't need any special converters. Uh, unless you go a ridiculous amount, then you go into fiber or something else like that. But it, it is a technology that I would like to see mature more in the uh, commercial space. Uh, it definitely wouldn't hurt. HD base T, step in the right direction as far as getting the, the distance down, but it does add a, a good expense to it that's not going to come down anytime soon. Hmm. But uh, we're making HD base T products. You know, we like any other manufacturer, you try to accommodate what the market wants at that time frame. And pay attention to what's coming out so that way you can properly adapt to it and not fall behind like everybody else. Yeah. You know what, Paul, I'll tell you what. I'll, I will – I would give them – so, so don't, I don't care about EDIT. I mean I, I do a little bit, but, but don't even give me that. Just give me the ability to, to authenticate the stupid keys and I, I'm happy, you know. Um, I'll deal with the e did myself, but the, the threat, you know, just yeah, you're right. Give me the back channel so I can you know, I can negotiate. It has its place. You, even in the professional industry, e did e did on one hand can cause problems, but as mm -hmm. long as you can override it, it's a great thing. But e did does have its place because when you do first plug it in, the beautiful thing about an e did is it does reveal the capabilities. I mean, to the display device or the destination. It doesn't know that it even has really an EDID inside of it. It's kind of dumb to the display. A lot of people think that there's a super smart communication going with EDIDs. There's not. It's only important to the source, and the source is what retrieves it. The display could care less what the EDID says, has no idea what's there. It's important to have the proper information available that's revealed from the EDID, but the source device is what uses that, and that's what tells it. What, what, is the, what is its native capability that I should be putting out the signal? What type of audio can it handle? Does it have audio? Uh, so these are the things that comes in very handy from an initial plug-in. But it is nice to have the ability to override that, which most devices do. If you ever notice in your uh, cable box or one of your other peripherals, there's always a way to just do auto or force it to 720p or 1080p or 1080i. So as long as you have the ability to override, it's not a bad thing, but if, if you're if you got let's say a professional Blu-ray player and the display can't handle its capability and, and it's not set up correctly and now you know now it didn't default to its native whatever it read off of it, how are you going to see it on the screen to change it? Yeah, no, and then that's true. That's true. I didn't I didn't think about that, but I was just I was, I was just trying to get the give me the content protection. Um, that would be nice. Last well, that'll, minute, that'll come with the two-way communication now. It would, it would, it would, and you know what? I, I was, I made the joke about five G. I, I, you know, they've they've got SDI, four um, G, three G, yeah, three G, um, and if all they need to do is is give some sort of back channel, and they could do pretty much whatever the heck they want. I'll, I'll take any G at this point. That yeah, puts it in. yeah. Uh, all right, guys. Last but not least, this comes to us from Lifehacker. Um, the question is, what's the oldest software you're using? And uh, on it is a picture of a Windows ninety eight uh, installation. At a bookstore, um, I my personal is that we have a teleprompter uh, at the college that I work for that uses Windows ninety five, uh, and it for no other reason is because that's the software that we have and we don't use it very often. 
Um, and to replace it would mean buying a whole new installation, which is several thousand dollars, and we just, it, the computer still runs. It's still running 95, so. Um, actually, Paul, real quick, how often do you guys update stuff? I mean, because you've got, you've got your own software that you use to, to program uh, Aurora and stuff. Oh my God, it's, we still have old stuff. You know, we, we don't want to use 98. I'd say we kind of fell away from that. We still have XP around here because oh, yeah. uh, a lot of people still like it. It's, it's reliable, it's solid. Millennium, if you have it, will shoot you. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's, that's, you're asking for a death sentence on that one. Uh, but, um, you know, as far as uh, we still have XP around here, it, it works, it works well. Windows 7 I use, Windows 7 is great. Windows 8, Great, but they need to clean some things up, which is coming up in a firmware update. They, they took away too much too fast, and they caused a lot of confusion. Uh, but we do find that, you, you, you know, every time they come out the new OS, there's, there's, we find out that we have to do this or do that to make the stuff work again. So we're, we're constantly updating firmware every time someone comes out with something. I, I wish they would just keep what was working working and then advance it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Doug, what are you guys using at NICE? What's the oldest uh, stuff you're using at NICE? I think it would have to be XP. Okay. I think because we're not we're not that old as a company. 2010, and, and I think 98 was gone by then. So yeah, XP it would be. Very good. And Mr. Callis, you're a Mac uh, guy though. We we just retired our last XP machine about two weeks ago. Wow. So uh, we're running uh, seven across the board. Very good. I, and I noticed that that you know no one no one said OS uh, nine. You know, uh, Mac OS 9 or uh, or uh, Windows Vista. So, uh, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, with us has been Mr. Ron Callis, uh, the CEO of One Firefly, sir. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks. Thanks for the opportunity. And uh, how can people get a hold of you, follow you, uh, website, Twitter, anything like that? Uh, yeah, best place is our website, uh, onefirefly.com. That's uh, uh, spelled out, O-N-E, firefly.com. And you can also find us on Facebook at uh, One Firefly LLC. So forward, you know, Facebook.com forward slash One Firefly LLC.com. Uh, or, sorry, One Firefly LLC. Right. Real quickly, uh, I need to, I forgot to ask you this. Are you, is One Firefly going to be um, one of the partners for IMAX for the private theater? Uh, no, we're we're the channel manager. Okay. So we all are right. officially doing all of the the hiring, firing, management, and support of the uh, for IMAX for North and South America. Okay. I was gonna, I was going to point people to you if if they wanted one of these, but uh, but just go to the go to the website. Uh, the yeah, uh, go, go to IMAX and uh, uh, and it, it will that that will land uh, in my email. Okay. Uh, Mr. Paul Harris, the CEO of Aurora Multimedia. Thank you, sir. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for inviting me on again. I, uh, you know, I always enjoy uh, having these, uh, this being on this program. Absolutely. Uh, and how can people get a hold of you or get a hold of Aurora Multimedia? Uh, they can get a hold of us by going to our website's best way, like everyone else. So www.auramm.com. And uh, actually, in another week or so, right before Infocom, we'll have a whole new website going online. And we will be at Infocom, so definitely uh, check us out there. Um, we will be introducing new products there as well. So uh, please stop by and uh, see us. We'll be at booth 3159. Very good. Uh, booth 3159. And uh, Doug Fast, last but not least, the last CEO uh, at NICE NYCE Control. Thank you, sir. Thanks very much. I enjoyed it. It was a good talk. How can people get a hold of you or get a hold of NICE? Uh, easiest way is our website, uh, nicecontrol.com. That's nycecontrol.com. And you can get to our Twitter handle up there and, and, and other ways to reach us, but that's the easiest. Okay. Uh, my name is Tim Albright. I've been your host. Uh, if you'd like to follow me, it is Tim David TD Albright. Uh, on Twitter, but more importantly for me and everybody here, uh, go by the website, avnation.tv, avnation.tv. You'll find this program as well as a host of others. Uh, we've talked about Infocom for a little bit today. Next Friday, uh, we're going to have uh, some of the old game back, Mr. Tucker, uh, AV Don, Matt Scott, and some others talking about Infocom and, and, and preparing everybody for it. If you are going, um, stop by, if you would, please. We're going to be recording some shows out there. Um, 
we are going to do an AV week, kind of a, a live studio audience AV week, uh, two weeks from just right now, actually. Uh, the room number we will be in is W, as in world or something. <laughs> W232A uh, on Friday afternoon between 2 and 4 p.m. Uh, stop by if you would please say hey, you know. Um, and uh, on Thursday, we're going to have some sort of tweet up that uh, we are not putting on, but we're hosting. It's, it's going to be in the same location, but uh, some very nice sponsors like Vadio and, and Chief and uh, Marketing Matters um, are putting together a, a tweet up uh, on, on Thursday between 5 and 6. So stop by then as well. Uh, but uh, for us here at AV Nation, thanks for listening. I appreciate it. Uh, that is all the time we have for AV Week. Oh, 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 oh,